I even got to the last stage two years ago. I got to the uh, the last forty for the uh, the Pro License Application Centre, and I walked in the room, and I'm up against John Terry. When we finally got down to something which the individual says he really wants to do, I will say to him, "You do that, and uh, forget the money, uh, because." If you say that getting the money is the most important thing, you will spend your life completely wasting your time. You'll be doing things you don't like doing in order to go on living, that is to go on doing things you don't like doing, which is stupid. Better to have a short life that is full of what you like doing than a long life spent in a miserable way. All right, so today we have a, a very special guest, uh, someone who I was fortunate enough to gain, you know, tons of knowledge under as we, uh, we had a little venture out in Grititan, Sweden, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, but today, you know, a very accomplished manager at such a young age already, coaching at, you know, various youth academies and scouting across uh, the UK and, and Scotland. So, Today we have Dino Sibson on the podcast. Welcome to Footwork, Dino. Uh, thank you very much for having me, guys. We're we really, uh, really pleased to be here and hope everyone's well. Yeah, it's great. So, um, awesome. Dino, tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself for our, for our listeners who, uh, who may be hearing your name for the first time. Yeah, so for me, uh, it very much started when I was 16, 17. I might sound very, very young age to take your first coaching qualification, but it was... Mm. Uh, I'll start by saying my playing background was quite limited due to uh, some unfortunate injuries. Um, and at 21, 22, I made the decision that my coaching career was going in the direction that I wanted it to go on. And uh, I stopped playing 11, competitive 11-a-side football, which, which was a, a sad decision to have to mm. make. But it was one that I felt I can't commit to, to two, two careers. And I'm never going to make it professionally as a player, given the injuries I was having. Um, and I felt that people always say to me, was it an alternative? And it said, no, it wasn't because I had a, had a dream and a desire to be a professional football manager. So I started doing the things that you would do, coaching in schools, coaching in community groups, um, get, trying to get your face known. And fortunately, I got, I got taken on by Port Vale Football Club and the Community Trust uh, and started to work in the academy and you know, spent numerous good years there before moving on to Wigan Athletic. And that was one of the first moments where I, a bit of a wow moment for me, having to, to watch Roberto Martinez and, mm. you know, having the flexibility to watch some of his sessions and to go there. And I was, I was charged with coaching the under 13s, 14s at the time. So for me to, to have that ownership of that group at youth development age was, um, was terrific. And spent three fantastic years at Wigan. Um, unfortunately, living in Stoke-on-Trent at the time, which was probably, like to say, 50 miles to it, you know, there and back, so 100-mile round trip. It, you know, it, it did get a little bit much, three or four times a week. Uh, and Stoke City were interested in taking me, so I, I you know, I uh, a sidestep moved to, to mm. a club five miles away from where I live. And two good years at Stoke. Um, unfortunately, changing management there. We wanted to change the whole academy at the time. And, didn't really fit with my the way I my philosophy, um, so I ended up moving to Wolves and had another two three excellent years at Wolverhampton Wanderers and and you know at the start of their little meteoric rise really to the Premier League because you know before people would people look at Wolves now and see them as a maybe a top ten top twelve Premier League club but Wolves haven't always been there they've always yo-yoed you know in, in recent history from Championship to Premier League um, and I was just at the start of that process when you know sort of Nuno 
you know, Spirito Santos was mm. coming in. Um, and the change in the philosophy of the academy was brilliant at the time. And like, you know, we, how we, you know, developing players, a lot of 1v1, a lot of ball manipulation, a lot of, you know, a lot of ownership on, 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 on individually beating your opponent. Um, mm. And then for me to, to, to sort of fast forward on a little bit, I had the first chance to go into professional football management in Iceland. Um, and I weighed it up and I thought, is this going to be something which is beneficial to my career going abroad? It's not beneficial to every coach. Sometimes they come back and it's hard to get back in. But for me, there was no, there was no second thought, you know, to go and challenge myself, new culture, new climate. Um, and I went across to Iceland and, you know, through a lot of hard work over 18 months, managed to uh, win a League Cup and finished third in the Premier League with the, uh, with the women's side. And uh, that got me the move to Sweden and obviously subsequently Finland. And I'm sure we'll touch on that as we go along. So, yeah. Absolutely. So I do want to test you on um, the pronunciation, your Icelandic pronunciation. So can you, can you pronounce that team for us? IBV Vestin. Ibivoth. Uh, uh, <laughs> Simplify Ibivoth. I-E-B-Bjoth. Ibivoth. amazing so yeah so i mean you've you've like you said i mean at 16 getting your first coaching badge um just can you go into that just explain like you know you have at such a young age you have all these friends around you that are really looking you know in these academies looking to play and was it something that you kind of had nicks of before you got the injuries or was it like once you got the injuries, it was like, okay, now it's time to start thinking about what I can do professionally. Yeah, definitely. hundred um, percent. And that's why, and that's why I go back to the, the question that I said, I've been asked several times because I started so young, you know, was it an, people say, was it an alternative? Uh, just, just, just because you couldn't play, you went to go, no, not at all. And there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of coaches who will say yes to that because they're hell bent on being players. I knew my limitations as a player. Um, you know, I was a, and unfortunately, the injuries came from being a bit of a tough tackling central midfield player, you know, very competitive. And I was never the quickest. I was never the most skillful. But I knew my limitations. And I you, knew were clean up, you were a clean-up six. Yeah. Man. Just clean it up, I, huh? I knew, I knew fitness-wise I could get box to box. And I knew mm. that I could pass and I knew that I could tackle. If you ask me to do anything mm. else, I'm probably, <laughs> probably, probably not going to compete as much as, as some others in the, in the forward areas. But um, I... <sighs> I took that badge that early because I felt like this is going to be the start of something really, really promising. Um, fortunately, in England, you can take your first coach. I think it's now 17. You know, I felt a bit out of place on the first course. I went there and I was in a room full of, you know, people 30, 40 years old. And I thought, oh, you know, is it, you know, is this the right thing to be doing here? But at the same, yeah, I threw myself into the course and the, 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 the FA level one coaching qualification, uh, you know, has been changed since, but it was a, uh, it was a welcome introduction to life as a coach. Um, and I wasn't one of these coaches who, um, and I was told not to do this and I didn't, I wasn't the sort of coach who would get the qualification, go and get the next one, get the next one and say, right, okay, I'm a professional coach now. You know, I spent time, like I say, you know, uh, working in socially deprived areas within Stoke-on-Trent, you know, dropping a ball in and helping a group of disadvantaged youngsters, you know, using football as a tool to, you know, get them into smarter avenues um, that, you know, going standing on playgrounds, freezing cold the first thing in the morning, teaching PS. So, you know, it, it has had a huge amount of varieties. I think when I went to Port Vale um, and, and got into a proper football club, um, it was a, 
it was a pleasure to work with some pros and I saw how hard the pros were working day in, day out. Uh, and that just inspired me to say, this is the level I want to be at. And, mm. you know, uh, been at Wigan under Martinez and Stoke, you know, under Mark Hughes and um, Wolves, Paul Lambert going into sort of the Nuno days. You know, you, you do get to watch those sessions. You do get access to those sessions. And that's just made me more of a creative and more of an innovative coach myself. And that's why I like, as you as you probably saw in Sweden, you saw the attention to detail that I put in for every single session because I work on the methodology that you should make your next session the best ever. Mm, you know, okay. I never, I never allow myself to drift. You know, if yeah. I've done a five out of six, five, five, six out of 10 coaching session, I'm not happy for the rest of the day, you know, and that, and, and, you know, and you know, as a coach, when you've done a, when you've done a session, oh, that, that, oh, that was okay today. That was all right, but it didn't mm -hmm. tip that box. It didn't tip that box. And, you try and make sure each session has a social, technical, tactical, and physical, phys physiological advantage as well. So, sure. Now, um, you know, you got your first badge at 16, and you mentioned a, the, a very important point that you weren't one of those coaches that would just, you know, get your level one, then your level two, yeah, level yeah. three, without yeah, ever applying yeah. it. Um, at what point, because you were so young, um, did were you, you know, training a team when they were maybe only a few years younger than you? You know, was there? Yeah, at what point no. did you have a team? You know. Yeah, really good question. And uh, I think at 16, I was, um, I was, I was just hell bent on getting the experience. So like I say, you know, it was probably, probably working with youngers, I think under 10s, under 11s, a local grassroots okay. club. Um, I started to get involved with my local, you know, my local non-league club. Um, and just working with the first team manager, reserve team manager, again, 17, 18, just watching sessions, going out, mm -hmm. working in the community. So again, you know, you, you're working with people who's a little bit younger than yourself, going on a match right. day, watching the warm-ups, just really help, you know, actually getting a pen and paper on a match day at Port Vale, writing the warm-ups down. And that mm. might sound really strange, but it was because I was thirsty for knowledge um, and the training ground was accessible to those of the staff. So we, we would often sneak out of the, you know, the, of the community building and go around and off at 10 in the morning and watch the session. And, you know, um, I happened to be pulled around by our community manager to say, we're going to do some work today, you know, and it was, uh, but that's, that's how thirsty I was to improve mm. my own knowledge and to it's the time away from it's the time away from that you know you're going away and you know you, you yes these days it's easy to probably put on a netflix or something like that but for me it was going it was watching football and you I just couldn't watch enough football you know and as i got right. older as i got older you know um i'd actually you know spend money or until i got a scouting job where i'd go and, you know just watch as many games in a week as i could like be paying you know videos and be going live games and, and you just got to saturate yourself um with as much as much football but also the right sort of football with the right contacts and that was something which is over the years has, has improved for me is my contacts in the game and you know I'm, I'm very fortunate now I can pick the phone up and uh, ring a football league manager I was talking to one this morning actually um, and just talking about the result for the weekend you know 15 years ago I couldn't do that you know mm. nowadays I can and that's just the that's the dedication to the game I think you have to have you know to get to the levels that you want to be at Sure. So do you think that you could get Sean and I a nice trial in the championship at some point? Just pick up that, <laughs> pick up that phone. What are, we, what are we saying? I'm still looking for the next club myself, Dylan. You know, just on that one, I mean, you know, you've, you've seen some of the American talent that just come over to the UK shores, you know, and it's never, what I would say is it's, it's, it's never, ever a closed door from my angle. There's, mm -hmm. there's, there's there's more and more opportunities. Yes, there's been salary caps. And yes, of course, with the whole Brexit situation here, but without wanting to go too much into that, there's, for me, there's still a lot of opportunities for 
um, US players to, to if they've got the talent and the ability to, to showcase that and, and who knows get picked up by a professional club yeah hopefully I mean you you mentioned something very good there very important I think as as young professionals young coaches is just that ability to soak in information and just be a sponge in your in your career I think especially as a young coach you lack the quote-unquote experience in terms of years yeah. So what you lack in terms of this, I think, like you said, is just so important to really be yeah. a student of the game. So, you know, just talking to other coaches, especially young coaches, how important would you say it is to be that sponge that's just constantly looking to, to gain new information, new perspective? Yeah, definitely. And uh, at the end of the level one course, I remember them saying to us, you know, our advice is you go away. I think at the time it was for a minimum six months before you, you enroll on a level two. Well, I think I did 12. You know, and uh, I did 12 because I just thought, well, this, okay, the level two, I'm told it's a bit more detailed. It's, it's a bit it's obviously naturally an upgrade in terms of uh, technical information. So I spent that time and, and you know, you, you can be a bit naive sometimes at 17, 18, thinking, well, you know, not that you know it all, but yeah, I'm ready for this now. And, you know, mm -hmm. I just took a bit, of, I took a bit of extra time um, to keep working in grassroots uh, yes, I was coaching, you know, I was little soccer schools here for, you know, working for my grassroots club, my local club. And I felt that um, I was ready at that age. And it wasn't until 21, 22, until I did my UEFA B license, um, which still at that age to, to, even to start the UEFA B license is quite early as a coach. 26, I think 26, 27 before I completed the UEFA A license. And still now I'm actively seeking to get onto the UEFA Pro license at 34. And you know, I've had conversations with the FA and it's very, very competitive to get onto the UEFA Pro license. There's only 18 spaces per year. Wow. There's only one course run a year. Um, so it's, and I, I, even, I even got to the last stage two years ago. I got to the, uh, the last 40 for the, uh, the Pro License Application Centre and I walked in the room and I'm up against John Terry. You know, uh, and, and you know, you've, you, you're looking around the room thinking I'm, I'm the only non-playing ex-professional in the room and Unfortunately, I didn't make that make the last 18 for that particular course, but the experience gained and just having the ability to, to speak to people like John Terry and, right. and others that was, was, a, was a huge experience. So, yeah, I would say you can't saturate yourself with enough football. You know, you've got to be fanatical about it if you want to get to that. And that's the same for a player. You guys will know as players as well. You know, if you, if you don't do the right things and you don't, you don't make yourself fanatical about your playing career, you know, you're only going to get to a certain level. And I'm a yeah. firm believer in the adage, if you, if you always do what you've always done, then you'll always get what you've always got, you know. Um, and that's, that's one, of the, one, of the, one of the sayings which I say to myself most days, you know, how can yeah. you push yourself on a little bit more each day? Mm -hmm. No, I love that. I mean, I, I, I'm very interested in, in, in England, especially just being the prestigious footballing country and coaching country that it is. is it, yeah. Does it put you at that big of a disadvantage not having a playing career whether it's a John Terry level or you know a league one league two even in these levels does it does it put you at a significant disadvantage in terms of gaining employment yeah. or gaining that a license pro license yeah, I mean? and again it's a really good question um, and I'm under no illusions and I'll be totally honest I know my lack of a professional playing background could be ultimately what what stops me getting some uh, some of the higher jobs mm -hmm. um, I was listening to the I was listening to a um, our local our national radio station this morning were doing a feature on Brighton and Hove Albion and they had um, you know the manager there Graham Potter was speaking and he was talking about the change in philosophy from when he went in from the previous manager and how he's had to spend time trying to embed a philosophy well that's okay but you've also got to keep the club in the, in the Premier League 
And yeah, those are the yeah. two challenges that he has to face. It's all about going in with a philosophy and a methodology and the idea that they play uh, really attractive football, which they do. But you've also got a, a, the pressure of having to keep them in a, you know, in arguably one of the richest leagues in the, in, in the world. So for me, it's no different. I look at it and say, I've got a philosophy and I've got a methodology, but I can't imprint that until I get the right position. And I've got to keep working hard. I've got to keep speaking to the right people. I've got to keep making sure that um, I'm putting myself in, in, you know, in the public eye, but I, I, I'm also updating myself with, with trends in football, you know, as we, as we know now, you know, you have to, you've got to be aware that, you know, the new rule, the rule changes, you know, how much is VAR having an impact on the game, on the game. So you've got to, you, you can't, I can't be, I can't be stuck in the, in the 2000s thinking what I did before is, you know, is good enough and the game evolves and you either evolve with it or you get left behind. So I think for me, um, Yes, the play, lack of a playing background is, is key. But the reason why I went abroad in the first place was to sort of do a Graham Potter example, really, and, and say, OK, I'm not going to get in this way. I'm going to go abroad. I'm going to become a better coach by working with players from all around the world, um, you know, yourself included, Dylan, um, and, and many, many others. And I'm going to do it this way. You know, when two trophies later and three countries later, I'd like to think I'm in a good position now to... Well, I, I, I have. I am, because I spoke to chairman, I spoke to club owners, and, you know, some of them say you're not far away. Some of them, uh, some of them you have conversations with, and, and hopefully things will happen in the future. But unfortunately, mm. we're all governed by the current pandemic, and hopefully things change soon. Right. Now, kind of tying into the point before, how, how you were heavy on, you know, you instead of waiting six months, you did 12 months to do your B... Yeah. Now, one thing that it's tough to learn by books is um, dealing with different personalities, dealing with, you're dealing with people as a coach, right? And yeah. just because you have a lot of knowledge of the game doesn't mean you can portray it to the players and then they connect mm -hmm. and understand what you were saying. Now, you, you went away to a foreign country, which now makes it even more difficult because there might be a language barrier, a culture yeah. barrier. Yeah. How, have, how have you developed... Um, of course, from such a young age with this and um, what were some big barriers going abroad uh, with connecting with your players, your philosophy, just language in general, um, yeah. you know, getting no, them to um, understand what you want? Yeah, um, the biggest challenge facing me when I first went to, um, to Iceland was that, that do-don't situation. Am I going to be in a stronger position by the time I come back to achieve my overall, my overall dream and my goal? My overall dream and goal is to work professionally in the football league and the reason why I've said football league and not Premier League is because I think there's a massive, there's a chasm of difference at the minute between the between the two. You know, the Premier League would be fantastic, but I think the football league is an, the English football league is an achievable goal. Um, that's not saying the Premier League isn't, but I think, you know, you you set a short, you set a goal like that, and you're working every day towards it. So that was the biggest challenge going through my head was, am I going to be further away? How is coaching abroad perceived in? in English football and you know by some clubs it's perceived as a positive other clubs it's perceived as a negative they don't they don't entertain it. you know they'll go for what they know we'll go for the merry-go-round of managers who um have, have got the 100 150 games under the belt 200 games under the belt and and, and, that, and that's absolutely fine that's absolutely fine and you you know that you get you get results with, the, with those type of managers but I looked, I looked at the, the, the bigger picture and thought, well, yes, it might be Iceland, but why can't I carve out a career in maybe European football or, or football around the world? And then maybe later in life, because I'm, I'm still a younger coach, maybe come back with the credentials and maybe the, the experience to then work with football league players. And that's what I've done. And, and you know, I had, I had, 
had some international players that I worked with in Iceland, and that was my first time of working with Icelandic internationals, albeit in the women's game, um, which was fantastic over there, by the way, the way they perceived that. And uh, everything was built towards women's football over there. I had some um, really, really, you know, perfectionist type players who you'd have to physically drag them off the pitch, you know, at the end of the session to, you know, to get them in. And uh, players who potentially were at risk of being injured, who just wanted to stay out there practicing free kicks, hitting top corners and hitting penalties. And ultimately by winning the League Cup final on a penalty, it was justified, you know, uh, all that practice and that time on the grass. So that was, um, that was the first one. And, you know, to go to Sweden from there, uh, the decision there was, okay, well, am I ready? Am I ready for, you know, the football league and everything's going to... Th- no, I'm not ready. And I, I felt for me that going to Sweden in the men's game, working with players that I was told were coming from all around the world, um, <laughs> not, just, not, not, not just the States, you know, there were players there from, from other countries. Um, and I'm sure, you know, Dylan will back me up on this one when I say the, big, one of the biggest challenges there was, was amalgamating that group into a squad because there were some fantastically technical individuals, you know, Dylan being one of them. But at the same time, there was a lot of different personalities. There were some mm. who some who wanted to, you know, do things on their own. There were some who were very sociable, who wanted to be around players. There were some who were more shy. There were some more outgoing, some introverts, some extroverts, you know, and bringing all that together into a squad that was capable of winning that league was a great achievement, you know, a fantastic achievement and one that we should all be very proud of. And at the end of that, um, to then go on to a, a bigger club in Finland, I felt was the right time. And my career was progressing bit by bit. And unfortunately, in Finland, I never got the chance to fully show what I could do because of the financial situation at the club. But I look at it and say it was the right thing to do by going abroad. I'd do it again now if I had the opportunity. Um, you learn so much about yourself, your independence. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt that I became a better, a better leader of men abroad because I you know I did that job relatively on my own with with no backroom staff and for me um, I saw them players grow together day by day every training session you know they grew socially they grew as a squad and that was reflected in the results so I would be very much an advocate of any young coach wanting to go abroad and learn their trade. Yeah I completely agree just to come back to to the Sweden experience that we shared I mean just to touch on some of the, the, the countries that were present. I mean, we had U.S., we had Mexico, we had Canada, we had uh, Brazil, we had, you know, Sweden, we had refugees that were in Sweden. So, I mean, and I think a big point and a, and a big challenge for you was, like you said, I think we had some very technical players. I think at times there was a little drop off in terms of, talent or experience from players that were you know on the bench fulfilling you know as roles and for you how difficult was that to design sessions to bring a group together that kind of differed in terms of levels and then ultimately I mean languages for sure well languages and uh, apologies for not answering that question the previous question but languages um, I was told when I got the job that they wanted me to speak in English. They wanted me to coach in English. They wanted me to speak English. And learning, learning Swedish wasn't uh, obligatory. It wasn't something which I had to do. Um, so that was one of the, not say conditions, but that was one of the expectations upon taking that job. Um, and that is quite common across Scandinavia. Um, I, was, I, was, I was told the same in Finland and in Iceland that they didn't want to weaken or dampen the quality of my sessions by me trying to talk in another language. So that they wanted the sessions to be conducted in in my native English. Um, however, and I'm sure you'll, 
you sort of familiarise yourself with this, though, Dylan, is that when we when when we got amongst the whole squad there in front, there was some Brazilian players that couldn't speak a word of English. So you know, um, and and to, to, to their credit, they had fantastic perseverance that they were. Uh, you know, they were still trying to seek the right answers and they were still trying to work off demonstrations and some of the other players were helping them out. But I did try and learn a little bit, a bit, a bit of Portuguese at the time and, and not overly successful here at first. Um, but <laughs> uh, it, enough to communicate with um, in, in, in certain aspects. Mm-hmm. In Finland, I started to, um, you know, just skim the top of it really by learning a little bit of Finnish because I, I felt in football to the level it was at, it was it was something I had to give back really. You know, it was, it was a second tier of Finnish football and a club who just been recently relegated from the Finnish Premier League. So this was arguably the biggest club that I managed, and I, I didn't want to be naive and go into this and just as you know and okay speak English. So I, I did. I, I was in the process of learning a little bit of Finnish, um, but again, I wasn't there long enough to complete that task. But no, personality-wise as well, you've also got the issue, like I, said, I go back to the point that I made about the extroverts and the introverts, and you'll have seen it yourself. You, you know the players that are going to be out there 10 minutes before the start of the session, you know, mm-hmm. rondoing or warming up proper, and you know the ones that are going to turn up a minute before the start of the session. And what I tried to do in Sweden was bring everybody together to a, to a group of, a culture of excellence, really. I, I, and I set those expectations and those core values. And one of the things I've learned as a coach is you never go away from them. You never lose your core values. You might change yeah, you might change things like formation, you might change shape, style of play. But your core values that you have personally as a coach are embedded towards you. And I found it found it hard initially to get the some of the uh, local players over there to get it to buy into them. because um, they'd done things a certain way and they were used to doing things a certain way. But I don't think you win leagues if you don't have everybody singing up the same hymn sheet. And that is ultimately why I think we achieved the success because everybody bought into what we were trying to do. Right. Now, can you, can you go into a little more about what happened in Finland? Because like you said, this was your biggest team. Yeah. But to that point, um, what happened there? Yeah. Well, unfortunately um, the club had entered into a period of financial difficulty uh, in amongst the time that the deal was being thrashed out and me going over there. And I actually signed a three year contract in Finland um, and my briefing was to, in the first season, to get the club back up to the Premier League, um, the Vakers Liga, as it's called over there. Uh, the second season on the contract, as we, as we agreed, was to stabilise. And then the club were that ambitious that the third year they wanted to push for Europa League stroke Champions League. And the, the budget reflected that um, at the time. And they just, unfortunately, were never able to um, recover from the relegation, the, the, the financial costs of that. Um, and ultimately, some of the better players that we had at the time, you know, they, they sought opportunities elsewhere. A um, lot of hard work behind the scenes to try and recover and to try and repair, but they weren't able to fulfil the fixtures. And unfortunately, the club, three months, four months into my three-year contract, was, 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 was wound up, stroke, went bankrupt and, uh, um, and was declared you know, no longer... Um, no longer active as a professional football club. Uh, to their credit, wow. they have since reformed. Uh, they've since reformed and started again right down at the bottom of the Finnish ladder, a la teams in England, such as you know AFC Wimbledon have done it, uh, coming back. you know, And uh, Newport County, obviously, leaving the football league many, many years ago, have come back, still the same club, but they've had to start again. Um, you know, And there's many, many clubs that have had to do that. 
and um, and this club, to their credit, have done very, very well. And they've two promotions under the belt, and they're now back in the third tier of Finnish football. So uh, I do wish them luck. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Wow. I mean, as a as a three year signing a three year deal too, I'm sure that was quite tough because it's not only your biggest opportunity to date at the time, it's an opportunity to really instill a philosophy that is truly yours and you know work with professional players and a professional environment that's much more structured maybe but I mean how do you bounce back from something like that that is you know such a roadblock in in your coaching career at such a young age yeah well I very quickly realized that there was a lot of young players who uh, obviously were still there after the relegation so you you go down the road of thinking well at the minute there's not much positivity going on around the club there's not much optimism because of the situation so I, I made the sessions as, as again, as creative, as, as innovative, and I don't dare I use the word fun, um, but as fun as, as it could possibly be. But at the same time, whilst preparing for the season ahead, not knowing if the season was actually going to go ahead. Um, mm-hmm. And I suppose that's very similar to how some clubs were doing at the start, the whole process, the whole COVID-19 situation over here, not knowing when football was going to restart. And having spoken yeah. to a few professional coaches over here, that was obviously a struggle here is preparing and training, not knowing when the actual games are going to take place. So um, it is a, it was a struggle. Um, how did I personally adapt? Well, I, I knew that training was going to be on every day. It was despite the, you know, the, the hugely difficult temperatures. And I think at minus 30 was the, was the lowest that I experienced. Um, but we were training in day indoors every day um, in the dome. Uh, and I remember we played one game and um, I was told that the legal limit where a game can be called off, in Finland is at minus 15 um, and I remember I was on the sideline and, and, and looking up at the thermometer and it was, uh, it was minus 14 uh, <laughs> and we'd actually just got a goal down and I was thinking yeah go on go on go on, yeah, go on. You know, <laughs> pick another one yeah <laughs> um, but no I mean I, I look I look back at that as a I'm quite a positive person as you can probably tell and I look back at that with lots of great memories experience yes the situation wasn't wasn't good at all in terms of how it finished but I learned so much again about um, adaptability. I had mm-hmm. to adapt. You know, every single day you went in there and you'd have to put a really, really brave face on a training because you'd have to inject that positivity and inject that enthusiasm, which is natural to me anyway. But then you'd be going in front of the media in the afternoon and you'd have to answer questions about the future of the club. And obviously that's, I wasn't privy to all the details. And um, you go from wearing one hat to another um, mm-hmm. and the ups and downs and the roller coaster situation ultimately meant that you know it wasn't going to be as long term as I would have liked um, but since then I've looked upon that as a you know the positives of that it was I was offered that position um, and hopefully I'll get offered similar positions in the future and I'm here and I'm ready to go again I've dusted myself down and took taken some time to reflect on what I did right what I did maybe wrong and uh, and I'm ready to go again I'm full of energy and yeah, ready for the next club, the next challenge. So to transition now away from coaching, um, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, are you currently a scout for Mansfield Town? Uh, up until recently, I'm not anymore. So in terms okay. of obviously legally, I can't claim to be um, because I'm no longer I am. I can touch on experiences with within scouting sure. at Ross County, Doncaster sure. and Mansfield, but I can't say I'm there. No, because COVID, Mansfield took away the whole scouting block. They, they had to financially... So let's dive into that scouting. I mean, from my understanding, it's, it's a lot different than coaching because you're not dealing directly with personalities. You're more, 
looking from the outside, and I know I know of a scout. Um, he was scouting for Arsenal at the time, and he said it. It, it at times can be frustrating because you spend all this time looking at players, but it doesn't mean that the team in the end is going to take what you're giving them or your feedback. I mean, in your hand, in your eyes, yeah. where have you scouted uh, in previous years, and how have you felt about that? Yeah, so my my first scouting mission came. Um, I was coaching at the time, uh, but I, as I said, I was going out and watching games, and I was paying to get into games at League One, League Two. Probably this was probably early twenties, uh, early to mid twenties for me. Um, academy football as a coach, but uh, a contact of mine was at Ross County in Scotland and asked me if I could go and watch one particular player, just as a favour, because that player was playing on my on my local patch uh, near me. And I did, and I wrote, I wrote a report, and he was really impressed by the report. He, he said it was fantastic, and detail was far beyond what he envisaged. Uh, and that became a regular thing. I ended up watching a lot of League One, League Two football. Uh, and you're watching for two things, because obviously what you're not watching is you're not watching the next opponent, because obviously Ross County are Scottish, and I'm watching the English Football League. So you're watching two things. You're watching players for the now and players for the future. Um, players for the now is always a bit difficult because you go, you're governed by transfer windows. Um, so that became more prevalent, you know, August, September, at the start of the season when, you know, the window's about to close, more so for loan players. And of course, then January when it reopens again, um, back end of December into early January. So for me, it was uh, more so watching players for the future and looking at uh, young players uh, coming through. Is this player maybe ready for a loan move? Is this player potentially someone who could physically handle the, the, the rigours of, the, of maybe Scottish football? Because, um, you know, it, it's difficult up there. It's, uh, mm. it's good. It's good level. It can be physically difficult for young players uh, to go up there and, 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 and compete. Um, so that, that, that's how it first came about. And when I got back from, uh, came back from, I think it was, was it Iceland? Uh, I, I was coach, I was scouting for Doncaster. And I, again, a contact of mine who was at Doncaster at the time, who's, uh, who's actually now the manager at Hull City, um, Grant said to me, listen, Dean, you come watch a few games um, and just see what you think in terms of these players, potential recruits. And obviously that then became a little bit more oppositional analysis. So I, once I was, in, I was trusted to provide detailed reports on players, I was then asked to go and watch opponents. And that goes back to what I was saying. You, you could be at, you could be at um, Colchester on a Tuesday night, you know, having to make a journey, four, a three, four-hour journey back at the end of a 10 o'clock game, you know, and not getting back to the early hours having to write a scout report for the next day, you know, and that's, uh, it's, you know, the travel was, was tough, but, at the same time, you know, you, you're in a very privileged position as a scout. And, you, you, you know, you, you look at that and say, well, I'm doing this for the benefit of the club. And you're hoping that, obviously, your club then go on to win the next game. And then finally, um, most recent scouting position was at Mansfield, um, as I mentioned before. Um, unfortunately, with COVID-19 affecting the finances of clubs, you know, that's, a, that's affected the, the scouting department at Mansfield in terms of its limitations, its resources. So um, I was only there a short period of time. But again, just watching opponents, watching potential players and looking at who, who, who can make a difference in the future. Right. Now, right, can you so dive deeper into the process of what, what, you, what does a scout do? So what did you do as a scout if you're going to look at a player? Well, first of all, you... Like, take us through the would, process. Yeah. So first of all, you, you would make sure you do your homework on the player. So you do your research. And I'd always, I'd always be an advocate of watching a player three times. If, there's, if the player was of an interest to a club, your first initial 
viewing is to look at the look, look at the profile of the player. Does it match what you know from your research? You know, has the player changed? Is he played in a different position? Um, you know, you might have a position in mind that you think this player plays, and it, but you could go watch somebody who 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 you thought was a a deep line central midfield player who might be playing more as a ten. You know, and that's happened in the past before. You could be you could go to watch a centre back who's playing at fullback. So you you've got to you've got to first of all look beyond the what you initially thought and say okay so what are the parameters of this player what's you know can, has he got a primary position a secondary position and maybe even a tertiary position that potentially you could say to the manager yeah this player is is flexible this player is versatile I think the second viewing of the player um, would be to cement what you already know. So on the second viewing, I would say, okay, well, I scored this player this from the first time. Maybe maybe a score out of ten, maybe a score out of five. Whether that be for technically, tactically, physically, um, you know, impact on the game. Um, and a lot of scouts in this country have this thing where on 70, 75 minutes, it's an unofficial rules of scout where they, where, they, where they go. And you see a look across in the scouting section, and a lot of scouts will leave on 70, 75, 80 minutes when the player's been taken off. But I would always look at the impact after the, the, the player's either gone off um, and, how, and what's the, and what and how, and did the team miss that player, you know, and, and, and mm. what, what's been left behind. So I'm always a scout who would, I, would, I would stay 90 minutes 90, until the end of the game, even if, you, even if I was three, four hours away from home and got a long drive back. So I think the second viewing, go back to that, the second viewing is to cement what you already know. Um, has anything changed in the player's uh, performance? And I think the third viewing is to make a decision. And because you got you got to you got to back your decision. You you know if you're if you're half and half, fifty fifty, or you're a bit unsure about that, you know, then the club aren't really going to take you seriously. And you know, I would never have said to the manager, oh well, I think you should sign this. You know, you've got to be crystal clear. You know, you've got to have got to be sure in your own mind this player is going to a improve his team and b is going to be someone who, yes, got the ability, but have they also got the personality? Have they got the you know? Is this someone who's going to want to come? And you know. Right. To, you know, so that's 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 how I would describe the process for me. Really, that that will be different for each scout, though. You know, that in each club, so not every club will be governed by that particular way of doing it. Now, in in this structure, as a as a scout, how are you judged on by um, your employers and by the clubs? Is it based off of players that you recommend that may turn out to be good fits, or because I mean, you may recommend players, but the club is not always going to take your word. So, no, how are you evaluated as a good scout in this process? Um, I think again, it's, it's, it, each club. I'll start by saying each club different on this one because their success will be judged by, for some clubs, by the, the number of players you get in, be by the quality of player that you get in, see how frequently you get players in. Um, my best, my best spell as a scout, so to speak, in terms of players that I would back myself in terms of re- recommending and getting in was, was probably at Doncaster. And, you know, I, I, and I remember watching a player four times just to be absolutely sure. And it's, I won't name the player, but the player was playing for Portsmouth at the time. Um, and, you know, Portsmouth from here is a long way away from me. But again, you know, sometimes you'd watch him away from home. Sometimes you'd watch him at home. And you've got to do that, I think, because the player might, you know, might be fantastic at home, but away from home might struggle. Um, I'd also look at, the teams that are playing, you know, so for me, for example, if I was watching a player in League One now, I wouldn't want to make a judgment having watched them playing against uh, Sunderland, Portsmouth, Holt, for example. Those that that, that would be um, a poor use of time because I'm looking at the player playing against three of the top sides in the league. I'd probably be looking at maybe a, a game against Hull, maybe a game against Bristol Rovers, and then maybe a game against MK Dons, for example, and and split them across the three. So that I'm watching against the mid-table opposition, against 
and a team at the bottom and then a team at the top because yeah, the psychology changes, the, the tactics change. You know, the team might be playing one way against Hull as they, and completely another way against MK Don. So I think all these variables come into play. Um, and of course, I will have watched the player on video before I even go out and I'll probably watch the player on video again before the absolute recommendation goes in. I'll probably watch another one just to be absolutely sure. So it, it's a very difficult question to answer. It changes club by club. Right. Um, but success can be measured in many, many ways. For me personally, it was, did I do what the manager asked of me? Well, I think I did at the time because I was able to get the right player through the door in terms of what he wanted, but then the right budget, the right position, right. with the right attitude. Uh, mm. Yeah, so there's many factors involved. It's very, very interesting. So to transition a little bit back into, I guess, all of the things, all of these uh, positions that you filled, you've, you mentioned that you have and have built such a interesting, consistent network. Now, I've, you know, just from talking with you back in Sweden and then, you know, doing some more research just to, just to refresh myself on all things Dino, um, <laughs> I read that you uh, you worked under Sol Campbell for a bit. So, can you go into some of the uh, some of the big names that you've been pleasured to to work with, work under, and learn from? Yeah, um, in terms of names, um, well, Sol Campbell just to touch very first on Sol. Sol was somebody who I learned an incredible amount off in a very short space of time. Um, I was at Macclesfield for eight to ten weeks. Um, I'd already signed a pre-contract agreement in Finland, um, so technically I couldn't get paid. I couldn't have a paid position by another club. I'd already signed a contract. Um, and Macclesfield, to where I live, is uh, roughly around about a 20-minute drive away. So as a personal friend of the chairman's at the time, he said to me, listen, Dean, I've got a manager coming in who is a high-profile manager. I didn't know at the time who it was going to be. Um, but he said he's not got a huge amount of coaching experience. Um, I know that you're leaving us shortly, but you know if you're available a couple of days a week just to come and help out. A couple of days a week turned into every day um, because obviously I was available and I was thirsty to learn off salt. You know, and this is just a player who's represented England, you know, played pre numerous Premier League and that's Premier League football. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, being around this guy was, I could, I could only, I could only uh, improve. And, you know, we had, um, we had a situation where Sol was just infectious with his coaching. You know, he, he wouldn't, he would leave no stone unturned. He was incredibly detailed. Um, sessions would sometimes go on for three hours, um, two and a half, three hours. Um, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying, you know, we, we were due to play at Colchester away on the, on the Saturday. And obviously that includes an overnight stay. Colchester is like, you know, quite a four or five hour journey from here. And obviously the team coach was ready to go down in the afternoon. And we'd arrange there to have lunch before we were going. And the session would start 10.30, 11 o'clock. Well, half past one, we were still training. Well, the bus was meant to be leaving at one o'clock, you know. Um, so, you know, and then that's, that's a compliment to the guy. You know, that's a right. compliment to the guy as a, you know, because he wants his players to interact so much. He wants to get as much information into his players. Uh, and, yeah, I, I got on the plane to Finland thinking that was probably the best, you know, nine and eight to ten weeks I could have spent prior to because I learned so much. In terms of others, I spent three years at Port Vale. Now, Mickey Adams maybe a name that doesn't resound. To, to, to many, but Mickey's gone on to manage Leicester and Fulham, Premier League manager of 800 mm -hmm. odd league games, um, phenomenal manager in his time in terms of you know what he did with clubs in terms of getting them to uh, the Premier League, um, the way he transformed at the time, like I say, Fulham into being a Perino Division One club and and getting them into the higher 
the higher realms, Leicester as well. Um, and he was somebody who had a different management style, but who I, who I very much respected because at the time he was more of a, a dis disciplinarian would be the wrong word, but he, he could have the, he could have the technical and tactical side, but he also had the firm authoritative side and you just knew where you were with Nicky straight away. You know, you, mm. he left no stone unturned in terms of knowing what he thought and, you know, you would, you, you know, he's the sort of person he could build you up and, you know, and improve you as a player, but, you know, but also he would take time out to, um, from, from what I understood, to work with players and let them know exactly what they were doing wrong on the pitch. So you weren't unclear as to, okay, he's leaving me out for, for whatever reason. So, um, so yeah, uh, Mickey would be another one, um, and I'm quite, I'd say, quite fortunate to to know a few. I mean, I would have mentioned Grant Grant McCann, who's the manager at Hull City. Um, Grant was my manager at Doncaster Rovers, and Grant would often say to me, "Listen, Dean, come and watch training. You're more than welcome to come and watch training." You know, and as a, as a first team scout, I would take the opportunity and I would drive to Doncaster and go and watch the, the training sessions, and they would be absolutely fantastic because again, you're looking at a manager who's a player who's played for West Ham and for Peter Burrow, who's, who's now going into the, the early part of his managerial reign, and somebody whose sessions I look back and thought, "Whoa, do you know what I mean? The, everything was Everything was really high tempo. Everything was competitive. Um, the players were at it every single time I watched. There was nobody going through the motions, and um, and there's no, it, it was no. It's no coincidence that he's, he's now back at working in football at a big club like Hull. So I mean, there's just two or three. Um, I am quite fortunate I can pick the phone up to a few championship managers um, just to have not work within the game, but that I've met on my travels and, you know, you exchange contact numbers when you're, you know, at half time or you're at the end of the game and, you know, and, they, and, and, and I really respect the fact that they'll take time out of their busy schedules to, uh, to help me. Yeah, Amazing. perfect. So I know, I know you're, you're short on time. Do we, do we have a little bit of time left? Yeah, minutes? okay, yeah, yeah, five, five ten minutes, okay. yeah. Cool. Um, so I guess, you know, you have, you had quite a career so far and you're still early in your career, but what has been one of the most difficult challenges you, you have faced or continue to face with coaching? Um, have faced is, is, is not the being abroad. It's the coming back from abroad. Um, because again, it's the perception of, um, Finland was a bit different, a bit different from the rest because I, I felt that I never got a fair chance in Finland to really get mm. going. When you sign for three years, um, you can't you can't look at it from a contractual situation and say I'm going to be there for three years because as we know in football anything can happen. You know, right. these days sometimes it only looks like you've got three defeats and you're under pressure. <laughs> but I never felt that um, I really got a chance to put my methodology or philosophy across there before the situation became apparent as to how deep the troubles were. Um, so that was a difficult one to overcome. And that's why I've taken time out of the game to reflect. Um, mm. And obviously, unfortunately, we, you know, at the time I joined my reflection process, um, I had the opportunity to, to go back to Sweden. Um, and that was a tough decision to make because I knew that a relegation battle was commencing there. Uh, and you're looking at, it's, it's always the what if. Well, what if I come back and clubs still don't look at it as a positive? I see it as a positive. It's just that perception. Here in England, you know, it, it, it can be a good thing with some clubs or it can be a negative thing. And that's like, as I said previously, some clubs will go for what they know and they won't change from that. Some clubs will embrace a manager who's been aboard, like Brighton, for example. You know, Brighton could have gone for a... After Chris Hooten left Brighton and of Albion, they could have gone for a tried and trusted Premier League manager just to keep mm -hmm. them in the Premier League. What did right. they do? They had the foresight to go for Graham Potter. 
Graham had spent his career in Sweden developing as a coach, Osterschön, you know, what did they do? They went to Arsenal, won in the Europa League, made his Brady name for himself. Yeah. And now and now he's at and now he's a, a firmly fixed Premier League manager having just signed a six year contract. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it and those sort of things are what motivates me. You know, people like Graham and all that. Mm-hmm. Hearing mm-hmm. those stories make me think that I can um, I can achieve and get as high as I can in the game. But there have been disappointments and of course there have been highs, there have been lows. But like I said at the very, very start of this uh, this podcast, I think you, I'm the sort of person that takes the lows and turns them into a positive. And uh, mm-hmm. my advice for any coach would be if you're going to get, if you're going to get dumbfounded by the lows and, and you're going to, you know, you, you've got to look past them a little bit. You've got to, you, you've got to have that uh, desire to go again sort of thing. And that's, and that's why I'm still looking now um, and still talking to clubs and potentially, hopefully once COVID-19, um, you one know, day. Is, is one day, be back in professional football and uh, ready to mm-hmm. go again. Yeah. Now, so before we get into our little ending fun game where we're going to ask you, you know, some, <laughs> some questions where yeah. the viewers can really get to know you, um, yeah. just, to quickly, just to quickly point out uh, about what you've said about Graham Potter and his meteoric rise through Sweden. You know, I know talking with a lot of the guys that we had in our, in our Grititan camp with you, we yeah. felt, and this is not to badmouth the club because the club – you know, it was great to us and, you know, it is what it is. They were, I think they were hindered by resources and stuff is what I would say in terms of capital, in terms of just, you know, infrastructure. And we had spoken a few times and we really thought that with our core group, developing players, getting Swedish players throughout each year and with you at the helm, we really felt that we could have made that same, maybe not that same meteoric rise to go into the Europa League and beat an Arsenal. But we truly felt that we could have really brought this into the third tier and maybe, you know, second tier with that core and with you and just having that group who knew right away how to win. You know what I mean? Uh, 100%. Yeah. 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 I uh, I fully sort of echo what you said there, Dylan, to be fair. And the biggest regret from Sweden is that we're no longer working together and have that that challenge ahead of us after winning the league. You know, it would have been nice to have seen where we, you know, what what were the limitations? Where would we have Yeah, gone? exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, if they started to stop at Division 3, Division 2, then of course, and uh, then we know that's down to us as players and coaches. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that's the biggest regret in Sweden would be we never really got the opportunity to... Um, yeah to find that out yeah but, to just see um, see where we could yeah. have we could have went you know it's it but was it, a thing that... very, no no it is also very pleasing to hear that you know likes of yourself and others that the team i speak to have are continuing to play around the world you know and mm-hmm. uh yeah. i keep in touch with yourself and i keep in touch with as many players as possibly can and it's nice to hear that you know just because the you know the, the opportunity wasn't there for us to carry on in sweden that you know players I've still got the tenacity and still got the desire to go further afield to other countries yourself in Germany and one or two in other countries. So that's really, really great to hear and long may that continue. And if we work yeah. together in the future, then that's... that's uh, I would love it. I, I, I love the sessions and I, I've echoed in this podcast before that I felt that you were the manager I've learned the most from just in terms of, I mean, we could come to you with tactical questions and it'd be like just rattled off. Like, all right, if we're in a three-five-two, you know, what does this player do here? And it's just... It, I just feel like the knowledge of the game comes very easily and you're very well suited to portray that and project that to your players. So, I mean, just kudos to you for that. Thank you very much. 
Of course. Now it's time for the fun part. So we're going to get into the, uh, okay. the little game. Hopefully you have an answer for, for each of these. But, um, the you know, we'll boy? just – I think the, the I think our viewers know you quite well at this point, but now they're really going to get to know you. So, of course, right. we start off with the, uh, the number one question in football always is Messi versus Ronaldo. Who are we picking? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm picking Messi um, personally. Uh, do, do you need a reason for that? <laughs> I mean, if you um, want to give us a quick yeah, reason, no, I think no, uh... it's a huge debate, and it's uh, it's one that there's not for me that the, the two are on a, on a level far and far and above um, any any player that's in the modern era that's even remotely tried to come close to them. They're on a different pedestal altogether. Um, others have tried, and but you you have to say for the, for, the, for, the, for the sheer numbers alone, those two are on a completely different. A completely different universe. Um, why? Why would I put Messi ahead of Ronaldo? Purely just for that that in, that, that that instinctive ability to just do something out of nothing. And you might say Ronaldo can do that as well. And I remember Ronaldo's debut against uh, Bolton in the Premier League all them years ago. Mm. I, was, I was actually watching that live um, at the time. And uh, you know, he come on as a substitute, and the Bolton defenders didn't know what hit them. This is uh, what an eighteen ninety oh, was. You know, it was a bit, a bit of the ability in front of 72,000 to just mesmerise defenders and leave them in the wake. Um, fantastic career. And I just think, for me, having seen Messi live at Anfield, you know, virtually destroy Liverpool as well, in, uh, single-handedly, um, and the ability to turn a game out of nothing that was drifting and the ability to, to, to do that by his creative brilliance. He sees passes that other players don't see and, uh, you know, he sees gaps that other players don't see. He has the ability off his left foot, right foot to drive forward. He has that ability to score from virtually anywhere in the final third. And I just, I just, I just think he's been a phenomenal, phenomenal, they both have, but uh, the personal preference, um, I would fair. just That's say fair. Messi shades it slightly. That's fair. I love it. I think we're all in agreement there. So you were at Anfield, you just mentioned. I heard you are quite the Liverpool fan. Um, <laughs> now, what is the best stadium in England besides Anfield? The, the best stadium that I've personally been to or, or the best stadium? Yeah, the best stadium, stadium you've... Sure. Yeah, your favourite, personal favourite. Um, well, I've been to the new Wembley. But um, I was only watching. I say only. I was watching Stockport County versus Rochdale in the uh, in the, uh, <laughs> in the playoffs final. So in terms of atmosphere, um, obviously that was uh, many many years ago. Um, mm. But the new mm. Wembley from an aesthetics would have been um, probably the the best in terms of the view and the everything that comes with it. Now I've not been to the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, but I'm, I know people who have, and they tell me that that's just another level altogether. But yeah, I've not personally sure. been so. I can't say, but for atmosphere, I have to say, and it's not being biased, but there is none better than uh, than Anfield, in my opinion. You know, you, if you, and I was there, and I've been fortunate enough to be there on nights such as the the Borussia Dortmund night, you know, the the, mm. the fourth of the, the Barcelona yeah, yeah. night, mm-hmm. the return. You know, I was there, I was there for those games. So you were there to, for the Origi game for the winner. Yes, I was. Yeah, wow. but unfortunately, wow. I was. Uh, I, I, I was. Um, I should have had a ticket in the cop for that, but um, I, I gave it away to somebody who hadn't uh, hadn't been for years, and I, I settled for a main stand ticket. And uh, yeah, I didn't quite get the same feeling, but yeah, it was. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. I just That's don't think there's any better. You know, there's Anfield on a on, on a European night is is is, a, is an experience. You have to you have to save it. You have to save it. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Okay, so. I, I don't know how much you've you've traveled as a Liverpool fan, um, could be in general, but what about the best foreign stadium you've been to? 
Um, unfortunately, I have to say none <laughs> because I haven't travelled as a. I'm going to go to the new camp, but that was a, that wasn't Liverpool connected. Um, so okay. to answer your question about travel as a Liverpool, I, I, I always have an issue with that because I can't, you, you can't as a coach do both. Um, mm. Like for me, a lot of my work's been done abroad, and you know, watching Liverpool comes down to contacts when I'm back. It's just it's just people that I know who. You know who've who've got the opportunity to to get you know to, you know, to get a ticket or to you know it's it's not like I'm available every week and for these you know to be a a Liverpool supporter who goes every single game. So to watch Liverpool abroad, there's just very little opportunity for me to do that. In terms of actually the stadiums, I would hundred percent say the New Camp. I I went there just for a for a weekend. I caught a game against Granada, Granada, Granada I think it was. Yeah, oh, yeah and again, I think Messi scored three or four that day, and he was just of course, of course. You know, so yeah, fantastic wow. stadium. I mean, the thing about the new thing about the, the new camp or the camp new, however it's pronounced, is it's 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 the shape of the stadium. It's the mm. it, 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 if you yeah. go there as an away team, it's a daunting presence. You know, yeah. it must be. It's so it's so it is so vast. It's sure. it, 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 it just walks it. A little, the away yeah, the away fans are yeah, yeah right yeah, in the corner. Yeah. Like there's barely any you know away presence there. But people tell me that the Bernabeu is the same, and I'm I'm I've never been. So for you know, it's it's one of them, and maybe that's one that. One day I get a chance to go. But. On the list for right. sure. All right, so then uh, let's go right into a little lightning round. These are just quick bang-bang questions. Yeah, Pizza no or problem. pasta? Uh, pasta. Icelandic or Swedish language? Oh, Swedish. Icelandic, Icelandic was too tough. Yeah. <laughs> rock or rap music? Uh, rock. Uh, a bit. goal or an assist? It's got to be a goal, on it? It's got to be a goal. <laughs> It's going to be a goal. Yeah. Volley or diving header? Volley, for sure. Yeah. Uh, winning a league title or a cup title? Oh, that's difficult. Yeah, that's not as easy as that would, as that would, uh, as that would seem. Um, league title. But having, okay. won, having won the league and with you in Sweden and the cup in Iceland, both moments were very, very significant. Uh, I'll go league. Yeah, I'll go okay. league. 4-3-3 or 3-4-3? Oh, now we're talking modern day stuff, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Personally, uh, four three three at the minute. Um, you know, the, the, I say at the minute because it seems like everyone's playing three four three. Um, you look at the Premier League especially these days. Uh, the back four for me gives that gives stability and, uh, and until you can play around with other systems. So, four three three. Yeah. All right. Um, Manchester United or Everton win the Premier League? <laughs> Everton. <laughs> oh wow! Okay. Oh, wow. okay, okay. Yeah. All right. There's this, there's this perception that Liverpool fans um, dislike Everton some more than Man. I can tell you now, the biggest rivalry is Liverpool Manchester United, without a doubt. Yeah, there's, hey, you know, okay, okay. I might I'm, I might not be talking from an Everton perspective there because obviously they'll say Liverpool, but from a Liverpool right. perspective, it's Manchester United. It's a bit different, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. They're not yeah. on your lover. All right, this one's very important. Eddie Howe or Sean Dyche? <laughs> um, well, one's in work and one's not. Um, so you, is, is, is it is the question who's done a better job, or is it is, my, is who you prefer or who you prefer? Prefer. I prefer. I'm gonna say Eddie Howe purely for the way that he, he tried to he tried to play um, some really brave football with Bournemouth. Now mm. he did get relegated, and the one thing you have to say with Sean Dyche is he's kept Burnley in the Premier League for all these years. He's done an incredible yes. job, Unreal, yeah. um, and I have I have had the pleasure of meeting Sean once, um, and he's an, he's a nice guy, a really nice guy. Um, I, I just I just think with Burnley, 
they have to at some point. You know, what's the bigger picture for Burnley now? They've stayed in the Premier League. Can they get that, you know, top half, push towards mid-table? It's going to be difficult. But with new investment coming in at Burnley for the takeover. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, interesting times. I would say watch this space with Burnley. But in terms of just from a football purist, I'd yeah. say... Eddie Howe, yeah. No, I, I agree. I think they got a little unlucky with the, the relegation. They had a lot of injuries that year. There's a lot of things that went wrong, and, and <laughs> I, I'm a huge fan of Eddie Howe. I've said it on the podcast a million times, but what he did at yeah, Bournemouth was incredible. And, and hopefully he gets back into, uh, into money. Yeah, hopefully. Soon. I mean, they, 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 just, they just signed Jack Wilshire. I think that's a really good mm-hmm. Jack and getting keep himself fit and uh, fantastic signing for the championship to try and get him up. So, no, I hope Bournemouth can get back, up, back amongst it. Yeah, definitely. Perfect. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, I think that timer says it all. It's um, it's been a pleasure <laughs> to talk to you, Dino. I think we covered so much. It was a, uh, it was a quick hour, and uh, you know, hopefully soon enough we can have you back on here. Maybe a, a post COVID yes. once you have uh, secured that that next position, which I'm I'm more than sure you will. No, I just want to say thank you to you both for, for having me on, and uh, thank you to all your viewers and all your all your listeners to. Uh, for, for taking you know an interest, especially in you know, some of the um, episodes in my journey, it's been a it's been an incredible one so far. But it's far from over, and like I say, you know, really appreciative of everything that uh, we we did in Sweden, Dylan. And hopefully, we can work together again in the future. And if not, good luck with your travels in Germany. And yeah, stay safe and stay well, everybody. Appreciate it. All the best, Dino. Until next Take time. Care. Thanks, Dino. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See you. Talk, talk guys. Wow, Sean, crazy Fire, episode there. Bro. I mean, it just, just I feel like we could talk to him for days. Just you know, getting someone as obsessed with the Premier League as us, Ooh. and you know, we could have dove into VAR. We could have dove into a lot of things. It's been a twelve-hour. It could have been podcast. Yeah, but you know, he was a he was a guy that I tried to just soak up information. Like I said, when we had the pleasure of working together in Sweden, and. You know, it's a similar path, I feel like, to us in a way where being a coach at such a young age, you know, 16, he gets his first coaching license, you know, trying for his pro license up against the likes of John Terry. I mean, he's on paper, he's an underdog, as I think, you know, kind of we are when we are Americans journeying abroad to, to, to follow this dream. So, you know, I think there's a lot of parallels we can we can draw. I hope the coaches, you know, follow him along and take what he has to say because he's someone who's living it right now and, you know, he's right there. He's got all these contacts, talks on these network. I mean, a lot of the things, like you see, it, it's, uh, it's very similar in terms of building. It is. I mean, and, and he's made his own path in a way with going abroad, like he said. It, it's like a fine line between is this going to help his career or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but you certainly are going to learn from putting yourself in an uncomfortable situation. And, you know, what stood out to me the most, I mean, you have talked him up quite a while now, ever since you've been in Sweden. Um, And it's nice to finally hear him uh, and his personal story, but like the dedication from a young age is the reason where he is, is where he he has gone up until Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Um, Like with whatever it is, whatever your dream is, your passion, you, you have to immerse yourself in this. You know, like all he could do, like he said, it, it was think about go watch, go watch football and then think about it. And then if he had a bad session coaching, you know, we've talked about how it's not always good to just, you can't stop thinking about it. But at the same time, that's the level of dedication that you need to have in order to reach the apex of coaching or whatever it is you're, you're chasing. And mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the most incredible parts about his story is that 
I mean, up until this point, he has had a lot of things, a lot of adversity that didn't go the way as planned, but here he is still. Um, I'm sure he's going to have a great job coming his way soon, and I'm sure he's going to be very successful. Couldn't agree more. No I mean, it's that level, that level of obsession that's needed to really master craft and you know, get to areas where people don't think are possible. You know, all these professional athletes, they didn't, they didn't get there. Tom Brady didn't win, you know, seven Super Bowls or whatever it is just from, you know, doing what he's doing every day. You know, like he said in the beginning, I can't remember what the quote was, but it was like, if you keep doing what you're doing, then you're going to get what you've got. Something yeah. like that. And it's just that, that like, if you're just going to stay stagnant doing the same thing every day, the same level. Okay, I'm putting right. in work, but I'm putting in the same amount of work every day. No, how can you get better? Right. It's that level of There's obsession. Ways that to improve it, and adaption. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Crazy good episode. Great to hear from him again. Um, that's it for us, though. That is. Keep plugging and passing. You know the deal. Like, subscribe on YouTube. We have uh, the deal. We have some big things coming. Big things. Big coming. things coming. Actually, by the time this episode out is out, you'll have heard about it. But until Somewhere. next time, keep moving forward, keep learning, and make your own path. Footwork is sponsored by ourselves, but also Kung Fitness and Merchant Designs, baby. Follow us on Instagram at footwork underscore podcast. Twitter is at footwork podcast. YouTube and Facebook, just check out footwork podcast, search it. Email us if you need anything, any questions at footworkpodcast at gmail.com. And remember, plug, plug, pass. Tell your parents, Amazon delivery guy, mailman, I don't know who, just tell them. Like, subscribe, review, all of it helps. Danke.